is happening, everybody? This is Ryan here. Have an awesome guest on today. I'm Matt Tillman. He is the CEO of Open Envoy. has been in machine learning for over 20 years. Has Naval Ravikant as a mentor on top of it multiple times. Startup founder, I should say, and is doing amazing, amazing things in providing the 38x ROI for his customers. He's an absolute fire on today's episode. You're going to want to check this out. We go deep on everything from where do you spend your time, machine learning, the future of AI, as well as many others. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. This is your host, Ryan Stanley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Matthew Tillman. Matthew is the visionary CEO and co-founder of Open Envoy, which is leveraging AI to automate accounting. So Matthew has spent 25 years in tech with a focus on machine learning products for almost 20 years. He also has a B2B SaaS investment VC fund called TNT Ventures. And effectively, Open Envoy eliminates complex accounts payable processes by replacing human-centric workflows with an AI. Matthew, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, dude. Love your background. Love that you're from Chicago. Um, and like I was saying, you're very, very eclectic background. So excited to get into that as we get on the show. But before we do that, let's do a real quick revenue rundown so everyone understands the stage of the journey you're at. And kind of like some context around, you know, your organization, what you do and who you serve. So real quick, give us a background in terms of where you guys are at in terms of your ARR. Yeah, so we're sub, sub 10 million in ARR. Um, so early stage A round company, um, strong gross margins and, uh, uh, strong, strong growth rates. Awesome, man. And then walk us through your solution and, you know, two or three sentences, like what it is exactly and who serves. Yeah, sure. So um, in the world of accounts payable, you basically have tools that are forms on top of databases and require a lot of human work to get data into the system in order to automate it in the first place. So you run into things like OCR and all sorts of sort of upfront tech, and you run into a lot of BPOs. So think like offshore, nearshore labor, uh, entering data manually. And so our system eliminates manual data entry and it eliminates sort of like complex vendor onboarding, things of that nature. It also eliminates uh, two, three-way, in-way matching reconciliation workflows. So that's making sure that the invoice actually matches what you received versus what was in the contract and all of the complexities therein. And so with you know natural language processing, we actually process documentation uh, for, that, uh, for that reconciliation journey that our customers are on, as well as a reconciliation process and then eventually the GL coding and all the fun stuff that goes in, on, on, in the ERP. Um, so that's what we do as a company. Uh, it's very simple. We just digitize and reconcile faster, better, cheaper than humans because we don't use humans to do it. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, when it's, I guess like the, the factor is, is when they're talking about ways to automate, like very, very manual processes, like this is one of the first things that came to mind. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, so yeah, so excited to dig more into that. What's exactly like, how large is your team right now? So we got 67 now, uh, 43 of which are engineering. So we're just starting that go to market motion. Uh, okay. Well, 67 is still a good size, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good yeah, size. It's not, you know, it's not like you're, you're busting around with you and, and a couple other people. Like, that's a good size. What exactly is your go-to-market strategy for, like, customer growth and revenue growth? Yeah, so, I mean, our go-to-market is mostly enterprise sales journey. I mean, our customers are, 
you know, our average customer size is about 12 billion in revenue a year. Our largest is 74 billion in revenue. And so we're focused on sort of like 2 billion plus market. Um, and so it's a lot of, you know, boots on the ground, a lot of shows, a lot of conferences, that sort of thing. Um, there is a lot of like standard outreach as well. I know your background, obviously there's, there's a lot of, you know, BDR effort and things like that that we've started. We actually hired um, Doug Kerfess who started, uh, the go-to-market function, the inside sales and go-to-market function at Coupa many years ago. Before that, okay. he was ran inside sales at Salesforce as well. And so he's come in to, to build that practice just recently, actually. So we're early on in our go-to-market journey, but um, the initial customer set provided a really good baseline with which to understand what we need for that go-to-market function and then expand upon that. And I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with the, the I mean, are, are you comfortable sharing like the ballpark deal sizes that you guys work on? Yes, I mean we're we're six figure deals, so we're anywhere from two fifty to half a million dollars uh, uh, an ACV, um, and those are usually over the course of one year, right? So potentially multi year deals as well, depending on the customer and depending on the size and the back end and so on and so forth. But um, but yeah, so our ACVs are in, in the high six mid six figures, and this is actually one of the challenges with the go to market function. You basically, as you know. You, you have to hire a team that's capable of delivering that value and communicating that value and working with customers at that level because they're making a sizable investment in a company that's, you know, three years old. So, so it's pretty serious, um, pretty serious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of, I mean, the good thing about you is your experience, right. And, and the results you've created over your career. So that's got to help, but yeah, I like there, there's, there's two sides of that coin, right? There's the, the pipeline component, like we talked about, and then, having people that have the chops to talk at that level, differentiate, demonstrate the ROI, which sounds like your product has an amazing ROI. So we're going to talk about that a little bit too. So um, real quick, are you bootstrapped or funded? We are funded. Yeah. So we were funded okay. from day one for venture uh, funding. So yeah. So okay. we're funded by, you know, our, I think our first, first check-in was Naval Ramakant, uh, followed by Salil Deshpande and Gokar Rajaram and all these guys. So people that I've known for years who have funded previous startups that I've worked on and, and um, now we're backed by Riot uh, Ventures led the um, seed round. And then most recently, we just closed 15 um, led by RRE out of New York. Wow. Excellent, man. So Naval was your first. He's like a legend, legend in the space. So you, how did you how did that happen, man? Because like that's something people quote him all the time about his al- almanac, about leverage. Like so how did the yeah. whole Naval is your initial investor kind of happen? Yeah, well, I mean, Naval's great for, for me. I've known him for many years and uh, he's been really helpful just as a mentor to me uh, over the past, I don't know, a little bit more than a decade, actually, as it turns out. And I shot him an email and we had a conversation. I was going to go off and I knew there was a real problem around accounts payable because if you look at the 212 companies in the accounts payable category, none of them handle variable cost invoices where there's like fuel surcharges or something of that nature. And so we knew there was a real problem. So I shot him an email saying I was going to go off and doing it. And he was supportive immediately. I think within like eight minutes, we'd sort of started our fundraising journey. Um, He also convinced me to start a VC fund, uh, which is TNT with, uh, with Parker over that same email thread. So uh, that's been a great learning experience as well and, and really sort of something fun to do alongside of building a company, growing and scaling a company. But uh, but yeah, that's that's how that happened. Uh, we ended up getting raised, I think, a buck and a half off of that sort of core group that has already invested in previous things that I was involved with. And mm-hmm. really phenomenal people that have always been supportive of sort of what I've been trying to do and um, throughout my career. And, and uh, that was that was our first initial fundraise. That was a pre-seed round um, that we did in 2020. And okay. then we took our seed round actually a little bit early, right? And those guys saw what we were doing. They, 
they came in a little bit earlier, but, uh, but yeah, that's the, the early, the early days of fundraising. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a really cool story, I, I think. And I get having him as a mentor, like, how did that happen? Like that's, that's a very interesting, you're the, so check this out, man. I've had, I've had a hell of a run the last two weeks of the, the people I've had on the show. I had um, a gentleman named Bobby Elliott, who was basically the head of the investment fund for Ray Dalio, the alpha fund uh, over at, you know, um, at, at his hedge fund. Right. I had Doug Dennerline. Do you know Doug Dennerline at all? Does that yeah. name sound familiar? The name does okay. sound but I don't know. So was, this is another wild one. He actually has a startup now, um, used to be in charge of sales for Cisco and their heyday grew from like 600 people to 6,000 on their sales force Had a $9.8 billion annual budget, which I've, I've never had anybody that had a $9.8 billion annual budget. And then I actually had the CEO of Zoom um, report to him when he became the, the CEO of WebEx before he left and started Zoom. So Anyways, like that. And then this, like, which is pretty cool. You're mentored by Naval. So like, how did that take place? How did that happen? And then um, I got some follow-up questions for you on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, we just, we met many years ago because I was, I was starting a transportation company um, at the time and it was, it was a really challenging. So I, I was looking for advice and a, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to him and we got on really well. We both worked on Maiden Lane. We both had offices on Maiden Lane. And so he like, I used to joke that he could like look out of his window and look into our offices and see how his money was going. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we used to just, uh, connect every once in a while over coffee or whatever that back when we were doing coffee meetings. Um, and, uh, I think we were standing in line one time at a coffee, like we, neither of us really drink coffee and, uh, we we're standing in line. We we're just sort of like, why are you even doing this? Why don't we just like go sit down and talk? And so we both had this epiphany and we should not be doing coffee meetings. So now I rarely do them. I don't think he does them at all. Um, but that's how that started. And then um, we have mutual friends as well. So Parker Thompson, the person I started the TNT with, who's a great guy. I've known him for many, many years. I met him when he was at Pivotal. He worked for Naval. He started the Access Fund uh, for Naval. And so, um, so yeah, just uh, got to know those guys over the years like that. And now Naval's off doing his thing and um yeah it's it's uh it's really a, silicon valley is a very small place in, in truth mm-hmm. it's a very very small place and sort of my background is primarily technical and so um i think having people like this that i could connect with in terms of their fundraising style like what they've gone through in their past cause it's not like they had you know it's not like all these guys that are successful had very clear paths to that success it took a lot of work to get there and so having that um support has been really, really valuable to me as a, as a technologist coming into the founder side of the business. Oh yeah, definitely, man. I mean, there's multiple sides to that, that dice in terms of getting it right and multiple skill sets you need. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. What would you say is the, I don't know, the single biggest or most impactful thing you've you've learned from him having him as a mentor? Oh, uh, him! I think just generally 
founders who have been through that story, that similar story. But, but yeah, involved as well. I think number one, it's use your time very well and be very protective of your time uh, and how much time you give to others and why you give that time to others. Because the truth is, you know, you can make a lot of money generally in a lot of different spaces. Startups included are, are probably the best way it through to the best path to multi-generational wealth. But that only gives you money, which is only good for buying more time. So I think his focus on time has always been present when we're when we have conversations uh, in the past. And um, I think that's the biggest takeaway from a lot of that that group of group of guys, those early Silicon Valley guys that went through hell in the early 2000s um, with the with the way the markets treated treated them back then. And I think, uh, yeah, every single investor of that category that you talk to, they're all like just use your time very wisely. Okay. Love this. Right. And so how I'm familiar with his work, right? Obviously not to the level that you probably are from, from working with him, but like, I guess when we talk about time, like what, like, that's a great topic. Right. And I would love to hear like, what's your framework for identifying like how to use your time, leverage your time and, and how to give your, like who to give your time to as well. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Something that we struggle with too as founders, right? Because you're you're innately, you're curious about the thing that you're doing. I think all mm-hmm. founders have to be insanely passionate about whatever they're working on. And it starts, you start to become a bit of a hobby almost and sort of everything looks like it can apply to the thing that you're working on. <laughs> so become curious about that thing, right? And so I think you need to be able to very quickly identify what's a rabbit hole that adds value to your business and value to your shareholders. And what is the thing that you need to put on the back burner? Like for most founders, you want to eventually become like a Microsoft or an Apple or some massive uh, large scale company. And that's, you can do more things. You can build more products. Usually it's what it's about. Right. And have a greater impact, et cetera. I think the thing that's really hard to do is recognizing something that looks really cool now and will eventually be a thing that you're able to work on if you get through these steps in your roadmap, right? And to always come back into what is the what reduces the friction in the sales cycle today? What um, what product needs to be built for customers in the marketplace three, six, nine, twelve months out? Instead of what impact am I going to have on the planet if I have billions of dollars of capital in the bank, right? So just just focus on what's needed to hit those milestones so that you eventually you can get there because. I've done this in the past. I've thought about, you know, all of the meetings that I could take that were exploratory in nature that are really exciting, but, you know, really exciting founders that people wanted to introduce me to. And I used to do more of those in the past. And honestly, um, as much as I enjoyed those experiences, they didn't lead to more value in the thing that I care most about, which is my business. And so um, that's that's the biggest thing. It's like what sort of commercial impact or what sort of product impact, innovation impact is going to have a business impact on my business now, three, six, nine, 12 months, not, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now as much as uh, what's necessary to get to the hurdles to hit the milestones to eventually reach that. that okay. That makes sense. So looking at it short term, I mean, do you, do you ever try and balance it, right? Where you almost have like a, that three to 12 month time frame, and they have more of like a farm system or um, anything like that that you incorporate? Yeah. So it, it, it the thing is um, that one recruiter that you've known for years that wants to have a meeting for 15 to 30 minutes or something like that, that doesn't lead to value 24, 48 months from now. <laughs> Right. It's like you think about that from a product perspective. It's like, you know, you know, eventually you're going to need 
I don't know, if you're at a payment company, eventually you're going to need some sort of credit facility, right? As an example, it's not something we do as a company, but for their style of company, it makes sense. So I could get distracted with Open Envoy by looking at that type of product feature and product enhancement. But also I should really just realize like we're going to stay in our lane. We're going to add a lot of value to customers and focus on that instead, or we're not going to take that recruiter call or you know, the amount of inbound that you get as a founder is, is pretty substantial. VC calls are another thing. So VC's calls are uh, corp dev calls and VC calls. Paul Graham wrote a great essay on corp dev. Don't talk to corp dev, right? Grow your business. They will find a way to get in front of you if you're stealing enough of their revenue. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Don't waste your time with corp dev. Don't waste your time on VC calls. A lot of founders talk to VCs when they're out of fundraising cycles. You should do that just to give them sort of, if you know them and give them a little update on your business, sort of how your, tra- your trajectory, get the, you know, sort of pre-seed a, a, a B round or a C round or something like that. But don't spend your time talking to them for self-gratification reasons, just because you're like famous and, you know, the, the Sand Hill set. It's a waste of your time. You know, focus mm-hmm. on your business. What can you do more today to grow your business? That, those are the types of things uh, that are really time wasters. That makes sense, man. Totally, I totally feel feel you on that because, yeah, I mean, when, when things every everything looks like it could kind of relate, it's a hobby. Um, you do really got to peel back because you can get sucked in anything, whether it's client acquisition, whether it's the newest social network, you know, like Threads or whatever, you know, right? Like, there's a lot of different rabbit holes you can go down. And then it's funny because literally, I'm not gonna say who, but there's a founder I just met with today who was talking about the same thing that you mentioned with the VC. Going on VC means like I went out there, met with a ton of VCs. He's like, it was okay. I don't need funding now. It's nothing I need short term, but you know, long term doesn't hurt. But you could tell, like, it kind of crushed his soul a little bit that he had to invest that time yeah. um, instead of doing what he he needed to do with the business. So I think don't that's go very... to a bank if you don't need money. <laughs> yeah, it's a real true, simple man. thing. It's hard to it's hard to hear, but it's really simple to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And you got to have the discipline. So is there anything that you do like day in, day out to uh, basically, I don't want to say, refine that that discipline or like any questions you ask yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the number one thing I like doing is talking to customers and candidates. Uh, I I happen to absolutely love hearing uh, from customers, good or bad. It doesn't bother me. Either way, I love hearing from customers. I love hearing from opportunities. Um, uh, because you, you sort of see where they're thinking, you see where their concerns are. I love that. I love talking to candidates. I love recruiting. I love hiring. Um, it's absolutely, those are that's sort of my priorities. And then, um, then it goes product and then it goes, you know, investors sort of at the bottom of that list. So when we look through and we're setting the schedule, number one is if you're a founder that goes to an A round, you're one of like, what it's like, 14% or something like that. It's a really low number that is, has escape velocity to get to an A round. Everybody is going to want to talk to you. You're going to get hundreds and hundreds more emails a day from literally everybody, right? Because they know that you hit a hurdle in order on the revenue side in order to have a conversation, whatever. So what you do is you have to categorize them into who is, which of these people is going to help add value to our business? And which of these people can I actually add value to? Like I want it to be an exchange of value. Who can I actually give value back to? And that combination is really rare in reality, if you're honest with yourself. And so I think setting a schedule is really important. Um, uh, I I forget who it was, Um, but someone at first round 
had a great blog post on how CEOs use their time and what that schedule Mm. actually looks like. So I think it's really important to nail your schedule. It's really, really important to say, I, I take my kid to school at this hour. I work out at this hour. I take, you know, exploratory meetings at this hour. I take interview candidate interviews these days. And if you get that really rigid, then it actually allows you to live not on your schedule. And that's where really interesting ideas come from. That's where all the ideas came from to start the company in the first place, right? You were like, at least we got space, right? I was totally depressed after my last company. I was sitting around in coffee shops in San Francisco, like reading French philosophy and just like thinking. (laughs) So like that, that that time is actually valuable to create, to create value. And, um, and so it's important that you don't, you don't lose those things. So time management and it's just, it's everything. To-do lists and nailing that. Um, not letting other people see your calendar is a very funny thing. Like Calendly became a very big thing. But if I give people Calendly links, they own my calendar. I don't do that. Yeah, You don't, you don't own my calendar, right? To be master of your time is really, really important. So you can focus on if a customer call comes up, you're like, yes, I will be on a customer call. Mm-hmm. Everything else is canceled. I will be on that customer call, right? If I have an opportunity to fly to the middle of nowhere in the country to a manufacturing facility of one of our customers, I'm doing it, right? That's the most important thing. Is at this stage, you optimize towards customers that love you and will refer you. Right, exactly. Big believer in referrals. So you're talking to my love language there. Uh, Most highly underused uh, area for customer acquisition. So yeah, I think you optimize for customers that love you and refer you. You nailed it, exactly. So especially with the high ACV area. So um, yeah, yeah, makes a ton of sense. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's, let's talk about, because I, I could talk to you about this for another hour, but we got to get into your story, right? So I, I want to hear more about, you know, your machine learning background. You've, yep. you're one of the few people I know that have, have been in machine learning for 20 years, right? It's about 20 years now. And so like, how did that take place? And then would just love to hear your perspective with the explosion of AI this year and where you think it's heading. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, my, it was funny. I didn't uh, mean to get into it. So I basically ran data and architecture for a small French brokerage firm in Chicago that became quite large, reverse merged back into its parent company. And it did that because at the time, the exchanges were going completely online with their data. So the tick data, which is what it's called, became available in real time to programmers at these brokerage firms. And it was really smart. Um, DDA Varley was CEO of the time at Car Futures and Rick Farina was coming in as well, the head of sales at the time. And what they looked at is they just said, there's an entirely new category of companies being made. All they do is algo trading. How can we enable as a prime broker, enable these guys with the data they need to make decisions in real time data and systems. And so we started building data for these companies and systems and they were building and training models. We started training models in-house in our, in our uh, alternative assets team, started training model. uh, I think it was run by Bernie Wienler at the time there in Chicago, really, really smart people who just saw the market coming to them. They said, now we have real time data. Our engineering teams need to be deployed on solving real-time allocations, real-time execution for companies like Citadel, Crable, RG, these guys, a lot of them are still market makers, still going. So they just saw it. And I ended up in it because I was a software engineer at at the bank running allocations. And so um, it was a wonderful experience to be sort of pulled in that market. We didn't really call it machine learning at the time. We just called it algo trading. Um, 
it was certainly a, a math category of, you know, linear algebra. Um, and then sort of ad tech companies glommed onto that and wanted to do the same thing. So I spent some time in ad tech because they were basically as a product manager, actually in ad tech where they were taking data, generating ads from that data, you know, that sort of thing and had a good run up there. One of my companies set TV was a phenomenally brilliant team over at set on the research side. They figured out a way to watch videos and to label the content of videos in real time. And we were watching something like 65 million videos a month, figuring out what was in them. Like if it was, you know, Oprah or whatever inside the video, I forget at the time, there was like a bunch of tests that we just ran, but we were generating a lot of label data. And it was really exciting because it was computer vision based, which is oh, nice. really difficult, right? Which is what we do at Open Envoy. We use computer vision. We don't use like LLMs don't make as much sense for, for the immediate finance space, right? Uh, they make some sense in disputes and translations and things like that, but they're really more for, um, for language, right? For, for communications. Um, and so I've, I've had this background of seeing really complex math. And the truth is, it's just cheap to run now. It's just a mm-hmm. lot cheaper to train. Like compute costs are pretty low relative to what they were back in the bank, right? We were all CPU based at the bank and startups couldn't afford the, that number of processors to make those decisions, right? We were spending a lot of money on KX and Bayou and all these real-time data systems. Whereas now for free, you can go to like hugging face and get a model with weights and start to train that model. The math is totally commoditized and free. I'm an investor in stability, right? And when you look at these types of companies, you have now open source tools on your laptop supported by Apple to do things like image generation. And that was not possible 20 years ago. Like you could have done that. Now it's just sort of democratized and it's mostly free in reality. Like the open source models actually beat a lot of the closed source models. Um, probably because, you know, more work, more efficiency takes place for free and everybody benefits, which is why open source is so valuable. Um, so in terms of just being able to witness it has been a really phenomenal part of my experiences to be able to be around it all the time and sort of see those advancements has been really fascinating. Oh, yeah. And you said, I mean, on top of it up, you said you're an investor in stability. Yeah. Like Stable Diffusion, that, that organization. Yeah. Can you, how, so how did that take place, man? Like, I, I love... Uh, you know, what I've seen from Ahmad on, yeah. online, Ahmad's the CEO, and um, you know, he's very, very committed in terms of his conviction of like what's potential and what what's the potential of it and what could happen. So, like, how did that take place? And it's like, how did it all kind of shake out, man? Yeah, so I mean, that's just friend of a friend sort of reference. His referral is the way that I got involved, and I didn't really. I mean, I'm small, super small check right into that sort of thing, and. Uh, But the thing that's interesting about that business is they're basically taking on the red hat model of, listen, this is going to become commoditized. In reality, it's just linear algebra anyways. It's not like it's not, I mean, math is free. It's like, you can't really regulate math. And so, so the, the, the attitude was, listen, if we open it up and give it to everybody, then you sort of get self-regulation you get the benefits of lots of people adding to the code base and sort of pointing out errors and, and pointing out opportunities for optimization. So I love the open source commitment. I love the open source attitude. We look at, and if you look at open source, look at the impact that Red Hat has on IBM's business today. It's pretty significant. And so I think that is a very real model. And I like the model better than the classic closed source model because think about how many how much more developer resources you have to throw at the problem in order to get the value that's 
equivalent to a crowd looking at looking at you know your math right at the end of the day your math yeah um, your models and weights and so yeah I just I really like their take on it I also don't think like there's this been this big argument of AI art and things like that as you know I went to school for painting I literally went to school for art and so when I look at this market I'm thinking well it's not it's it's design it's like a production it's visuals right it's so you're producing visuals you're not producing anything with like feeling or substance like you know it's a tool or a technique to present some sort of visual communication so i'm not a big believer that it replaces art or does anything to artists i think it's just additive it's interesting it's um it's really important from a cost perspective and and here's the overall on on stability in a lot of these companies Companies that produce a lot of design and artwork, like entertainment companies, as an example, they don't treat their artists like artists. They treat them like robots. So if you go to like South Korea and see what animation looks like on your local Fox animation program, whatever it is, whether it be, you know, uh, Simpsons or whatever, like that stuff done mostly in South Korea and they are not treated well. Right. Hmm. They are just churn and burn 20 hours a day, just absolutely the worst sort of environments for for work. And that's what creates cartoons. So instead of treating like humans like robots, I'm a big fan of like, hey, if this human is being treated like a robot, let's like find them some value add work to do, which is like directing actual machines to do this instead of treating people poorly and just saying grind out this like hand cel-shaded animation, right? So I like that about stability. I like that about AI generally is it sort of cuts the robot work out of what humans are doing. So we can like, you know, go make poetry or something interesting, like literally do anything else with your time, take a walk in the woods and it's more accretive to the human experience than grinding out another cell for an animator. That's so true, man. Like you want to eliminate the soul crushing work that is like either not in your skill set, right? Like you don't have the capacity to do it in a reasonable time frame, or it just sucks to do and it's really boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I assume that's why you built like what you did with the product, right? Because a lot of that, it, what I would imagine is like manually matching soul sucking work that just kind of sucks that people probably aren't really good at because A, they're bored at it and B, um, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's it's highly important, but is that kind of where the idea or thought for your product came? Absolutely. I mean, people don't graduate college with a lot of debt to sit and look at invoices and contracts. Right. Like that's not the thing they wanted to do with their life when they grew up. Was to support <laughs> it. And sort of the standard operating procedure today is, listen, we can't possibly look at everything. Spot check where you can overpay it. Look historically and see where we did something wrong if we have time. But we probably don't have time because you're spot checking the next thing. And then beg for your money back if you realize you overspent money. Yeah, that's actually terrible. standard operating procedure in all finance. So then what they do is they, they do this thing and you do it. Yeah, everybody does it where you buy an expense tool and it takes the cost out of your finance team and distributes it to the business who also didn't graduate school to look at expenses, by the way. They're like actually trying to make more money for the company, right? And so now you've lowered the cost of finance, but you've increased the cost of your company. So like bill.com and like all these other solutions, they just actually, they give you standards and controls, but they increase the cost of paying the invoice to your company because now you have people that make more money per hour doing that work because theoretically they knew more about the spend. Like a sales guy knew more about how to GL code something after three cocktails one night. Like it's just not true. Right. And sort of everybody said, but this is the only way we have. And I said, incorrect. 
The reality is machines do this black and white input far better than you can handle it because, you know, the one person in India that you've hired at your BPO cannot remember every line item that you've ever paid as a company. It's just sort of like humans don't have that search algorithm. So this is not a, this is not a human scale problem. This is a machine scale problem that people just haven't focused on with technology. So that's why we built it. It was because we knew we could do it better, faster, cheaper before you overspent and thus remove the clawback period, remove duplications, remove all these things that exist in sort of human driven environments. That's great perspective. And I love how how succinctly you articulated that. So I might have to go back and rewind that and uh, listen to that again. If you, if you didn't catch all that, or if you're listening at 2x speed, like a lot of um, <laughs> my other listeners do, so you might want to do that. But um, real quick before we wrap up, unfortunately, we're almost up on time. What would you say? Because like, there's a lot of things that you're doing amazing right now. And I think you, you have a really, like I said, really interesting past that kind of led you to this point. What's the single biggest challenge you're running into growing the business right now? Well, so I think we're at the so seed round technical feasibility, like will it blend? Can you actually do this thing for real gross margins or can you do this thing? And it's basically the same as, you know, having people in the Philippines as an example or something like that, right? Like every other company in our space. And so we wanted to make sure that it was actually technology and it actually worked, right? So that was step number one. It's really, really hard to do that. Really complicated pipelines, built in-house, you know, some difficult sort of A-level stuff, right? This phase of our company is purely about go-to-market execution, reducing go-to-market mm-hmm. risk. So that's all an A round is really about. You can raise whatever amount of money you want to raise, but all you're doing is de-risking go-to-market. And then you're trying to get an efficiency number within that, like X million of dollars in ARR versus $10 million raised, $15 million raised, whatever it is. So our focus is entirely on hiring, training people who haven't sold it before to sell it, to mm-hmm. nail that training process, that training program, certification, product certification, things like that. And to be able to generate predictable sales cycles. That's literally it. I think a lot of founders complicate every round because maybe something's not working. So they like sort of add other stuff, right? But the truth is that's all it's about. And then for us, the next round is about operational efficiency. And the following round is about pre-IPO. And it's just, it's actually really straightforward stuff. Um, So that's what we're solving right now. so it's it's the biggest challenge, but it's also the only thing that we need to be doing yeah. as a company. Um, and so we're very focused on on that. Um, but overall, you know, the the business really easy value proposition, just like better, faster, cheaper than humans, and generates a lot more positive cash flow because we are preventative. So the value proposition is very straightforward. But with a straightforward value proposition, a lot of customers have reacted like, "Oh, I didn't know that was possible." So right. there is a bit of a they don't believe you that. as well. Yeah. Right. They don't believe you or they think it's like yeah. voodoo magic. So that's like, that's, that's some of the things with some of the, it's, it's getting better now because people are seeing what's possible with AI. But before that folks were running that all the time, they're like, that sounds like snake oil. Like it sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, props to you for creating a solution that, that does that. And uh, you told me this prior, but like you have a 38 X ROI. Uh, typically for your solution as well, which is like the proofs in the pudding right there. It's crazy. It's crazy ROI. We need to charge more. That's all it tells me. Um, <laughs> that ROI numbers from our customers too. And uh, it always kills you as a founder when you're like, okay, I, I, 10X feels good. 38 means we probably didn't charge them enough. You know, that sort of thing. But um, those are our customer numbers. And, and like I said, all that matters early stage for any founder that's watching this is that you find customers 
repeatable customers, so sustainable revenue, and that they will talk about you, right? And all of our customers are reference customers. who got great reviews on G2, you know, that sort of thing, and uh, presenting at Gartner conferences with us. And that's worth so much more. And so that's why we've, we've just been very aggressive on, on sort of that customer satisfaction metric um, with the business. But yeah, tremendous ROI. Um, but like I said, it always kills you as a founder. You're like, oh, you know, it's sales too, right? As you know, right? so it's like maybe 38. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, unfortunately, Matt, we're up on time. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Open Envoy? And then we'll take it, wrap it up from there. Sure. OpenEnvoy.com, at OpenEnvoy on LinkedIn. Uh, same on Twitter. Uh, find me occasionally on Twitter, but mostly just about uh, Open Envoy. So feel free to link me in on uh, LinkedIn at uh, Tillman. Excellent, man. Well, Matt, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Enjoyed our conversation. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we will see you all on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.